Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hear me? Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to the lock-in, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from, in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. This podcast is one for optimists. We've just come back from a safari in darkest West Sussex. With my guest, our host, Issy Tree. We saw three white storks, among many other things. She is one of this country's most celebrated apostles for rewilding, which is turning on its head the way we look at the countryside and what it's for. She had the good fortune to have married a man who inherited Nep Castle and three and a half thousand acres of farmland from which they set out to produce food as the government, the European Union and the big chemical companies told them they had to do. It didn't work. Instead, they decided to let nature do its worst or best. And now the estate is home to birds, flowers and bugs, which were once thought extinct. You see, what was the light bulb moment when you realised you were doing everything wrong? I think it was the bank balance. I think it, was, it wasn't anything more romantic than that. I think after 17 years of intensive arable and dairy farming on this very heavy clay, we were one and a half million pounds in debt and just couldn't go on anymore. So despair, as it so often does, preceded optimism. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, if you're in a failing business, you're, you're very much in, in the blinkers, aren't you? You're, you're, you're thinking about how to survive into the next month, the next year. You don't think imaginatively. And it's only once you draw a line underneath it and you say, OK, we're stopping farming, that suddenly the world opens up and you look at your situation with much greater clarity. But you could stop farming and go into another line of work. It's quite something to say, we've been doing everything wrong. Well, I think probably one of the pointers was when we we met this wonderful man called Ted Green, who is a um, a tree specialist, and he was the sort of custodian of the old oaks at Windsor. And we asked him, we consulted him about a 
500-year-old oak in the park that was being split down the middle. And in the Second World War, the, um, German, the, the um, Canadian army who'd been stationed at NEP had tied it together with tank chains. But that was beginning to fail, and we wanted to see if we could save this great tree. And Ted came and looked at the tree and said, actually, this tree's in pretty good shape. There's a few things we could do, but it's absolutely fine. It'll survive for another 500 years. But he turned around and he said, those trees, those three or 400-year-old oaks in that land that the time was ploughed, um, they're not so happy. And we sort of said, why? And, and he said, because you're destroying everything, all their their life support systems. You're ploughing up the, their roots. You're ploughing right up to the tree trunks. You're destroying the mycorrhizal fungi with fungicides and pesticides and herbicides and nitrates and... Everything you're doing is killing the soil and the organisms on which this tree lives. And we suddenly looked out on this horizon of these trees that we thought would survive into our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren's era, and realised that we were actually killing them. You were lucky that you had married a man with a castle and lots of land, weren't you? Um, yes, but probably not for the reasons that you're, you're suggesting. Well, you can... Conduct a controlled experiment. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was a big enough tranche of land to do a rewilding project that could contain free-roaming herbivores. And that's been the key, because they are the drivers of the system. So um, if you have a, a smaller parcel of land, if you have anything, I suppose, under about 200 um, hectares, it's, you're much more constrained. If you can't have animals living out there all year round, you don't have that, that, that sort of possibility to inject dynamism back into the landscape again. So you need to connect with other areas in, in order to do something as, as kind of exciting as this project has but become. What was the objective to start with? The objective, I mean, I think we realised that working with the land rather than battling against it all the time was going to be the key to, to managing this, this very heavy clay soil estate. And we, we, our first step really was restoring the Repton Park around the, the castle, um, which had been ploughed up to the front door ever since the Second World War. And we got funding to restore 350 acres of that. And the potential we suddenly realised that was unleashed by that, just that first step, was incredible. I mean, I remember that first morning of walking out the, the summer um, after we had um, we'd reseeded it with native wildflowers and low-wheeled grasses. And the sound of insects was absolutely astonishing. It was something we hadn't, just hadn't even known that we were missing as farmers. And then, of course, after the insects came the birds... And suddenly we were seeing this landscape come back to life again. And we introduced fallow deer to graze the parkland and just watching wild animals just, you know, meandering slowly across the landscape was incredibly liber liberating. And so we thought, well, this makes, this makes sense. It's, the land is now doing what it's always wanted to do. Um, why don't we could do something, roll it out across the whole estate but why don't we do something a bit more interesting? And we just met this amazing Dutch ecologist called Franz Vera, whose ideas about free-roaming herbivores were sort of really shaking up how we think about nature conservation. Where did the money come from to do it? 
So in the beginning, it was um, high level. It was countryside stewardship scheme money. So these uh, people have paid their taxes. Yeah. In order that you can have the countryside yeah. you like. So it's it's um, and it's a sort of agri environment money. So there's this you know sort of very strange two pillar system in at the moment in Europe, where you are paid um, one pillar of the money goes to incentivizing farmers to grow. Um, crops principally arable on any land irrespective of whether it's appropriate for growing crops or not and then the other is to try and mitigate the damage the environmental damage that subsidy is doing by paying you to reverse some of those um, you know so set aside was a typical example which didn't work very well um, but it's it's it's, it's so agri-environment money so it's higher level stewardship money so it's yes it's it's part of that but whole you can cap understand. system people being taxed to produce food, you can't understand people being taxed to give a bug a nice comfy place to live. But it's more than just the bug. So it's it's the whole ecosystem. So that's what you're trying to do, is you're trying to restore ecosystems, trying to get land to function again. So I think where the... Where the um, what, what's been failing with the, the present subsidy system is that you are paying farmers and land managers to purely produce food without thinking of the damage they're doing to the soil. And we know that soil degradation and soil destruction is almost one of the most pressing... Well, then you put fertiliser on it. Yes, and then, and then you know, that, but that's a very short-term fix. It's a very short-term solution. Yeah, but it's a fix. It, very short-term, though. And what's happening is that our soil is degrading and degrading and degrading. If you carry on using chemicals, you lose that structure in the soil and your soil begins to become very friable it, it's a medium in which you can grow things only if you fertilize and meanwhile um, it starts blowing off with the wind and it starts washing out to into the rivers so you get this huge degradation every year so in somewhere like the fens for example we've only got about 15 or 20 years left in some of those areas of harvests before there's no topsoil in which to grow anything so we have to restore our soil. So whether you um, are, agree with rewilding or not, whether you think rewilding and getting biodiversity back is a good thing to do or not, we have to change our agricultural systems and we've got to stop ploughing and we've got to stop using chemicals. All the landscape in England has been managed for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, and you're now saying all this has been wrong. Yeah, so the plough... Generations of yeah. wisdom were wrong. Yes, were and we're repeating history. So you look back at any of the great civilizations. You look back at Rome, Egypt. You look at the Fertile Crescent, you know, where agriculture began. And, and look what's happened to it. All the soils have been destroyed. You look at the Maya civilizations. Civilizations have fallen because of this destruction of soil. And we're only just beginning to realise that, that the plough that was invented again and again and again and again was the worst invention we ever came up with. We have to start going into regenerative farming. And this is what's happening. It's not just here, but it's everywhere. In, in America, in Australia, um, the pioneers are the farmers who've gone bust, who've lost their soils, who've degraded their lands, and they're having to think differently. And so it's now, um, it's, it's coming. It's coming our way. It, it is the, the future is regenerative farming. How does it pay for itself? Well, you're, you're, for, you're not using any inputs for a start, so it's much, much cheaper. So you're, you know, 
farmers, there's a wonderful farmer in um, North Dakota called Gabe Brown, who wrote a book called Dirt to Soil. And he went bust through, um, I think it was a couple of very dry summers. Then he had um, hailstones that destroyed his crops. He couldn't, literally couldn't afford the fertilizer anymore to, to, to put on his land. So he had to think differently. He's now in the top 15% of producers in North Dakota, but using no fertilizer, no chemicals, no pesticides. He's, his soils are now so restored that they are um, six degrees warmer in the winter than his neighbors. So he's elongated his growing season. So he's now growing crops, different crops for longer. And because he's not putting any inputs in, He's actually making far more money. He's making a profit, much higher profit than any of his neighbours. He's not even having to irrigate like his neighbours have to. And what's more is he's selling now because his, his, he's now so famous and his crops are grown on functioning soils. They're actually considered to be more nutritious. So people are driving to him to buy his food. And so he's selling organic um, food at the farm gate cheaper than his neighbours can produce their non-organic food. So one bloke in North America can make has started a, started a movement. Yes, and so and this is happening all over America now. Um, uh, there's an, another um, uh, wonderful guy called Dave Montgomery who's written a book about it called Growing a Revolution, and it is what's happening. It's happening here in Britain. We have Groundswell, which is another farmers sort of movement, which is beginning to think differently. So it, it's, to me, it feels like it's like alternative energy. 20 or 30 years ago, we couldn't have imagined that it would eclipse fossil fuels. But we know now that that's the future. Regenerative agriculture is what's going to happen. It's just we have to ensure that it's sooner rather than later. And there's huge vested interest from the food and farming community and in, in, in industry in, in keeping the status quo. So is what we've seen here this morning with quite a number of people coming, wandering about, keen to see bugs and trees and bushes and things <laughs> in a natural state. That's a temporary part of the evolution, is it? In the longer term, you think everywhere will be like this? No, no. I, I think that this is very unproductive land, agriculturally speaking. So we'll always need land for agriculture. So on wonderful loamy soils, grade one, grade two, you would do regenerative agriculture. But somewhere like this um, is perfect for rewilding. So we're um, not only restoring biodiversity, but we're doing all the other, the sort of buzzword is ecosystem services or public goods. So we're um, sequestering carbon. So having gone from being a sort of net carbon emitter, we're now sucking down carbon into our restored soils, into the restored wetlands, into the vegetation you've seen springing up, all those new trees. Um, and we're also mitigating against floods. So we're now holding back water. So um, towns and farms beneath us, um, and there's now another building development on a floodplain um, downstream from us, are being protected by us being able to hold on to water for longer in times of big rains. So there's all these big positives to be had from rewilding. So how I envisage it working is that you have natural, re uh, you have um, uh, regenerative agriculture working alongside rewilding. So in areas that aren't suitable for agriculture for various reasons, poor soil or very steep or inaccessible, you would have rewilding projects. Um, but you would also have rewilded areas running through your agricultural system. So 
the network, the corridors that would link nature biodiversity hotspots together so that populations of species can function again, can actually have a, a hope of surviving climate change. And so it's the kind of webbing, rewilding I think is a webbing that moves through a landscape that connects it all together for, for systems to function again. And regenerative agriculture will make the landscape more porous, will make it more permeable for species, but you'll still need rewilding to have the full sort of spectrum of amazing, amazing creatures back. When you look around here, you see an awful lot of ragwort, which mm. is anathema to a lot of farmers. Mm. What did your neighbours think when you started off like this? We had poems written about our ragwort <laughs> into the local newspapers. People were absolutely outraged. And it's a very odd thing, the, the sort of visceral response that people have to ragwort. Um, it's based on very, very bad science, actually, that, that was done by the British Equine Veterinary Association, um, which estimated the number of animals, of horses particularly, that died from ingesting ragwort in a year. And they counted it in the thousands. Um, and actually that has now been revised, and it's probably about 16 or 17, if that confirmed cases every year. Um, so there's... the there is this hysteria about ragwort and we you know as a child I, I was I grew up thinking that you know you would go to heaven if you pulled up ragwort yeah. um, but encourage it but it is one of our it's a native plant it's one of our most successful species of uh, plant species at sustaining insects so hundreds of different species of insect depend on ragwort and about 30 species depend on it alone. It's very late flowering. It's that amazing acid yellow. So it goes on until sometimes here it can go on till October. And at night, it's a great attractant to, um, to night-flying moths. And we're beginning to understand that night-flying moths are actually better pollinators than bees. So it's, it's a really, really important plant. Um, and if we have zero tolerance for it, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's really damaging our insect populations. More generally, what did your neighbours think when you decided, sod this for a game of soldiers, we're not going to farm anymore? Um, I don't think there were... We, we had this very optimistic sort of gathering that we... When we realised what we could do, that we could actually get funding for reverting into a sort of nature conservation project, that we could restore our soils, we could see wildlife back, we could actually... Um, improve the balance sheet we thought that all our neighbours would join forces and that we could eventually have a block say of 10,000 um, acres which would be really significant it would be kind of bordered by um, the river and by roads and it would actually make a really exciting project and so we held this um, this kind of um, evening with presentations to tell our neighbours about it and expected them to kind of get very excited and there was this deathly silence in the room and people left shaking their heads and absolutely perplexed. They couldn't understand what we were doing. Um, I think a lot of that has changed now. I think um, now that w we have these headline successes of nightingales, turtle doves, purple emperor butterflies, I think now people are beginning to see that there was method in the madness. And actually uh, some of them have have uh, are now attracted to the idea themselves and thinking of doing it themselves. But these are just luxuries, aren't they? The 
Purple Emperor Butterfly, Nightingales, Turtle Doves and so on. They're just fripperies. Yeah, I think you could look at it like that. I think, you know, it's 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 lovely to be able to see and, and hear a nightingale. But um it is it butter any parsnips? Does it, it butter any parsnips? What 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 I think it biodiversity species like that show though they are the icing on the cake they are the expression of a functioning system so what we know is that if we have climbing biodiversity if we have particularly if we have rare species coming back something is working in the system so it goes back to all the other things that we're providing that we desperately do need we know just for example that the water that pours onto NEP from surrounding farmland um, it's heavy with nitrates. We know the water coming in off the roads is polluted. But once it's sitting on NEP, on our lovely heavy clay soil, um, it's it's the purest quality water you can get. So our land is acting like a filter. It's actually cleaning the pollutants out of water. So if you're thinking about water companies, water companies are now actually paying farmers upstream of them to restore their soils and their vegetation because it saves them money from having to clean the nitrates and the pollutants out of the water and the soil particles. So that is a tax saving, is a saving to the taxpayer um, in their bills. Their bills will be lower if you have rewilded areas, particularly around river catchments and where water is collected for, for human consumption. But these taxes that were introduced, the subsidies that were provided, the new chemicals that were developed, were developed because there was a perceived need for food more food to feed more people. Yeah. And rewilding doesn't do that, does it? Well, this again is is the sort of the story that the food and farming industry will will want wants to get across that you know that that food security is is the issue that we every inch of our land has to be under food production if we're going to feed the millions billions of people on the planet. What nobody ever says um, and the UN has done a report about this is that um, we are now producing enough food for 10 billion people, and we're 7.5 billion people now. So we waste 40, between 30 and 40% of that food. So that is the single most important thing to address if we're looking at food security, is how to stop food waste. But beneath that, too, is this, is this threat that if we do not start doing something about how to restore our soils, we're not going to be able to, be able to produce food for ourselves anyway. So we have to move to regenerative farming. And a way that rewilding can work in conjunction with regenerative farming is um, someone described it as, as pocket rewilding or pop-up nets. So what you could do is like, a, is like an old-fashioned sort of um, the old rotational system of farming where you would allow land to go fallow for mm. a period to, so that the soil could regain its... Um, its nutrients and its health and then you go to return it to farming so what you could do is you could rewild an area for say a generation say for 35 or 40 years you'd have that amazing scrub we've seen coming up you'd have your your nightingales your turtle doves you'd be sequestering carbon you'd be doing everything else and then literally you send in those huge machines from the forestry commission that turn it all back into a kind of workable tilth and then start doing regenerative agriculture on it and meanwhile, strategically, you've got other areas around you beginning to rewild. So your nightingales, your turtle doves, your purple emperors move into that neighbouring habitat. And so you could have a system where you're just alternatively rewilding 
and doing regenerative agriculture, food production. And that way your soils are endlessly sustained and actually your topsoil continues to grow. So this may be temporary? It could be temporary here. I hope it's not. Um, We're still on very heavy clay. I don't think it's ever going to be fantastic for even regenerative agriculture. I may be wrong. But certainly we felt very strongly that we only want to be committed to um, a certain amount of time. We don't want to commit our children or our grandchildren to um, rewilding if times change and they have to have to change the, the system of management it's under at the moment. So when do you decide to stop? Well, I don't think we would ever decide to stop rewilding. The wonderful thing about it is that it's endlessly changing and morphing. There's no goals, there's no targets, there's no end, end finish line. So um, what we'd like to see more of it, I think, is not when you would end rewilding. It's how would you connect to um, neighbouring land? How would you create a, a road bridge across the A24 so we could connect with people on, on that side of the road who are interested in rewilding? Maybe one day we could rewild the whole of the River Ada, the whole catchment. Would you like us to go back to living in caves as well? No, I think that's that a lot of people think that rewilding is about going back in time, trying to recover the past. And it's not that at all. You know, we we obviously can't. We can't create a a wonderful Eden before human impact with, you know, the planet has moved on, ecosystems change naturally anyway, but humans have changed our planet so profoundly we can't ever recapture the past. But what we can do is we can create novel ecosystems. So what you're seeing out there is a novel ecosystem. It's something that we've, we've... We've put drivers in place to to inject the dynamism again. So it's like pulling a, a glider back up into the sky so it can fly. You're using Tamworth pigs instead of wild boar. You're using um, Exmoor ponies instead of tarpan and um, longhorn cattle instead of aurochs. So you're using proxies of animals that were here driving habitat creation in the landscape before and allowing them free reign to kickstart new processes and just see what happens. And the key is just sitting back and allowing those large animals to be the managers of the system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Those three white stalks that we saw this morning they would once have been common in England, would they? I've never seen one here before. The last recorded um, white stork nesting in Britain was in 1416, so the year okay. after Agincourt. <laughs> so I'm not surprised you haven't seen it. them. Um, so I think um, we don't know how common they were. Um, they appear quite regularly on medieval um, banquet menus, so we know that people were eating them in medieval times. Um, they're obviously on um, uh, on pub signs. They're in in literature. They're on you know illustrated manus- illuminated manuscripts. Our local village is called Storrington, which in Old English is a Storkton, town of the storks, abode of the storks, and it's got two white storks on its emblem. So we think the storks were, and why wouldn't they? It's a per- it's, it's 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 perfect climate for them. Um, they're migratory birds from Africa, so. Um, but but they they need a colony in order to breed. So uh, unlike most of the rewilding project, where we just um, see what species will arrive, we know that some species can't arrive under their own steam. So uh, storks being one of them, they need a colony. So um, you in order to get storks back into Britain, you have to establish a colony. So we followed a kind of experiments that they've been doing in the continent to to bring white storks back, and it's been incredibly successful. So what happens next with the white storks? Yes. Well, or we have the other species. Yes, I mean, you know, we we would love to. We're having beaver. Hopefully, we're going to be releasing beavers here in um, in the autumn. Yeah, but they're imported beavers, aren't they? Well, they're imported from Scotland, if that's, well, that's what you imported. mean. Well, that's imported. If you're so- a Scots, <laughs> they're imported. Yes, but I mean, you know, we we killed we we killed all our beavers. I, they, they haven't been a, a functioning species in Britain for way over four hundred years. So um, we do need to bring back species like that. That's a key. St- beavers, particularly a keystone species. So you know, as a fisherman, you should know that. So you know. Well, they th- wreck. They wreck rivers. Uh, they, they make enormous dams. Yes. They fan- stop the flow of water. So the dams are a fantastic nurseries for for fish fry, and if you look at any of those large rivers in in Europe, um, where you have beavers, the the as soon as you have beavers on them, the, the fish populations start to increase. So what happens also, there's in, in salmon rivers, and if you think about salmon and, um, uh, and beavers have been coexisting for millions of years. So there's no way that beavers could have, could have functioned in ri- river systems. Millions of them would have been in Britain alone um, and destroyed salmon. So what happens is you get a, very, a scouring. When you have the, the, the beaver dam actually creates, holds back silt and creates that scouring beneath the, the dam that exposes the reds. So if you have um, silt, which is increasingly happening, f- pouring off farmland into rivers, actually beaver dams can help res- could maintain and restore the reds. And when you have the, the, um, the beaver dams are always very leaky. And so where you get the salmon runs is up the sides of them where you get these streams that overflow in times of big rain, which is when the, the fish are going up. So it's, it's a very well-established sort of um, 
um, a, a system that you know has been functioning for, for 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 millions of years. You're looking for other creatures to remedy the damage that we've caused. Yes, you are. Um, I think it's it's understanding that if you think about it from a nature conservation perspective, for the last century or so, we have believed that human beings have created the problem and human beings can be the solution. So our nature areas are very tightly controlled, very heavily managed. Um, they usually have a... Um, a target species in mind, whether it's a nightingale or a bittern or, or a suite of species or a habitat. And you're trying to lock down nature in stasis. You're trying to hold that condition, that habitat, to, to benefit that species. But what we found is that every effort that we've been making in conservation has still, our biodiversity has still been declining. So it's not working. I think what rewilding is about is it's appreciating the fact that nature can do all this on its own. It doesn't need us. And that there are key species that are drivers of systems, be they large herbivores or a beaver, be they natural water systems. And as soon as you get them functioning again, you can take a back seat. And suddenly that burden is lifted from the shoulders of human beings who believe that it's all up to them. Um, so it's not only cheaper, it's actually more effective. And in fact, it's the only way we're going to be able to get our, our ecosystems functioning again. But you're looking at it from a very, very broad perspective here. Farmers are concerned with making a living. Which bits of this farm make a profit? Well, the ecotourism business makes a profit. We also make, we, we are still producing food. I mean, we would still call ourselves farmers although we're very extensive farming because we're, we're ranching the, the the cattle we produce meat so we produce um, 70 tonnes of, of venison pork and beef a year. So you kill things? Yes, so you, the idea is you keep the, the numbers very very low the stocking density of the free roaming animals very low um, because you want to have this battle with the, with the scrub and the, and the vegetation coming up if you have too many animals, you will have an overgraze system, the kind of landscapes that we're very familiar with from our intensive farmed landscapes. If you have too few, then you have vegetation growing up into close canopy woodland, which is very species poor. And we, we just drove past a couple of plantations that we planted mm. um, back in the day when we were we didn't know the, the beauty of Woods. natural regen. And so that that's why, why you have to keep the numbers down very low. Yeah. And we're, we're very aware that we don't have apex predators. Um, it's, it's uncertain that apex predators ever would, would control population numbers. Um, I think if you're looking at somewhere like the Serengeti, um, apex predators only account for about 10% of, of, of population Human beings are the apex predator, aren't they? Yes, we are now. Yeah, yeah. So we, ha we are, in effect, the predator. Yeah, so we are, we are culling the animals. But you're not saying... Low let's get rid of managing the environment. You're saying let's manage it differently. What we're saying is that the more you can be hands-off, and at this scale, um, uh, you can. the only management we do pretty much is, is culling the number of animals. Um, and if you allow but everything else... But who are you else, to decide that? That is a very arbitrary, arbitrary thing. So we... 
we um, we we want to to um, you you don't want to have starving animals on your on your you don't want to you know you you're 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 looking at the health and welfare of the animal particularly if you're farming and selling the meat so you don't want an animal coming struggling coming through winter so we calculate our stocking densities on the number of animals that will come through the hardest possible winter with perhaps the longest wettest spring so you've got a very delayed spring flush of grass and you calculate how many animals would come through that in in very good condition and that's the number we keep the animals to from stocking density point of view but that also happens to be pretty much in balance with the way the vegetation responds so it's it it works in the sense that it keeps the vegetation from completely taking over and from it completely turning into closed canopy woodland, but it's still a very dynamic kaleidoscopic um, mosaic of habitats you have out there with that number of animals. That's still the apex predator calling the shots, isn't it? It's us as an apex predator, yes. But and I but I think there's another factor that we're missing, which is um, the the landscape of fear. And that has a big influence on, on the sort of impact of herbivores on vegetation. So, you know, we've seen with the, the wolf introduction into Yellowstone National Park, um, a predator will, will keep the animals nervy. I mean, we, didn't, we saw some cows, but not very many, but um, they're very relaxed and they'll graze over big areas in a very sort of loose herd. But if there's a predator out there, they'll bunch together and they'll move on much faster. And that will have an effect on habitat because the vegetation will be released in certain areas. There'll be areas where the animals know that they could be preyed on very easily and they'll stay away from those areas. So there's a much more complex habitat we could have out there if we had a landscape of fear. So I think it is important in the long term to think of reintroductions of apex predators. And well, I think wolves. Fl- you, you're in favour of bringing back wolves now, are you? I, I am. I think not now. I Is think there's no limit to your madness. <laughs> in, I mean, in Germany, they now have over sixty packs of wolves, and there's about ten wolves in a pack. And you know, that's that's a that's a densely populated country. Oh, I'd like to see you in conversation with a sheep farmer about this. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. But um, in Eastern Europe, particularly, and in places like Greece, where wolves are coming back, um, they are now um, breeding back the, the, those very fierce sheepdogs that can, that can fight off wolves. So there are systems that, we are, you know, that they are returning to. I'm not saying that we should have wolves now, but I'm thinking that one day, maybe our grandchildren or great-grandchildren will be able to make that call. Maybe there will be enough rewilded landscape um, for wolves, perhaps you know, north of the Great Glen, but we could certainly introduce a lynx. Um, lynx. The lynx. Yeah, because a lynx is a stealth predator. You, it, it, you would hardly even see it. It's very shy of human beings. It wouldn't eat your cat or your dog like a it's wolf not a would. Mouse. <laughs> but it's, it's not going to be taking taking pets, which is what a wolf would very easily would, would you know, would prey on cats and dogs. But a lynx... Um, I wouldn't would... leave my hamster outside if there was a lynx about. <laughs> I don't know if a lynx would be particularly interesting in your hamster. I think a, 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 a wildcat might be. And that would be another good introduction, actually. A wildcat would love it in that scrub. But a lynx would be in, in dense woodland. It wouldn't, it, it wouldn't, it's a stealth predator, so it needs very dense woodland. And it preys on roe deer. And we know we have massive, probably the biggest population of roe deer in this country for 5,000 years. So 
you know, it 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 would its main species of prey is is roe. Well, then you couldn't shoot them and sell them, could you? Roe deer. Yeah. I don't think the lynx would ever ever manage to cope with the entire roe population of <laughs> Britain, and also it would only be in those very densely you know forested areas. I see. You never finished the answering the question, what bits of the farm make money? Okay. So buildings like this that we're sitting in now um, were previously part of the farm infrastructure. So this used to cost us an arm and a leg just to keep the roofs on. This was a cow barn. Um, that was the sort of dairy um, buildings out there. So um, these buildings now we're converting, uh, you know, admittedly with capital outlay to begin with, but we, we convert them into office space, um, light industrial units, storage. They're now bringing in a big income stream. Um, we have the ecotourism business that um, last year turned over about um, £600,000. We make about 20% margin on that, which is way bigger margin than you'd ever make on farming. I think in our farming days it was about minus 1% or plus 1%. Um, and um, and the meat. So those are the three main income streams for us now. And we still get um, high-level stewardship, which um, is going to... Um, be changed after Brexit. Um, we hope there'll still be money there. We hope that we'll get um, funding from ELMS, the Environment, Environmental Land Management Scheme. That That's the um, subsidy that will um, take over from the European system. And that, for the first time, I think it's incredibly exciting because for the first time, um, farmers and land managers are going to be paid for providing not just food, but for soil restoration, carbon sequestration, flood mitigation, water purification, all these things that we desperately need and that are costing us hugely now, um, that is going to be part of your payment. But if, even in the worst-case scenario, if we don't get any subsidy at all in the future, we now think that we are a viable business, which we certainly wouldn't be um, if we were farming. So do you think this is better than the European agricultural system, potentially? I think it's incredibly exciting, yes. I think um, there is a huge opportunity here to to um, get rid of the the mad incentives that we've been fed from Europe, the European system, um, for producing food irrespective of whether it's the food we need, the food we want to buy, or, or the damage it's causing to the environment. So... For the first time, I think we're beginning to look at um, a different kind of system where you will be paid for um, farming responsibly. And I think together with those incentives for um, farmers and land managers to restore their soils, to deepen their topsoil, to look at their water systems, to, to uh, perhaps rewild areas of water catchment so that you can store water and mitigate against floods. All these ecosystem services, including um, carbon capture and obviously restoring the soils, is a massive carbon sink. It's, it's, it's perhaps the most important way that we can fight climate change is restoring soils. Um, all these are incentives, I think, that will change the mindset of farmers and land managers. Um, but at the same time, there is the stick being threatened for the first time, which I think is also equally important, and that is the polluter pays principle. So I think for the first time, um, farmers are going to be um, uh, 
have to pay for pollution that they cause, so at source. So if you are polluting the watercourses, if you are um, drenching your soils in nitrates um, and uh, losing topsoil, then the person responsible for causing that damage is going to be the one who has to pay. And that hasn't been the, the, the system for such a long time. It hasn't been levelled fairly at farmers. So, so Brexit I think that's is a change. great opportunity. I think it is a great opportunity. I mean, I daren't say that it's going to be plain sailing. Time for the referendum? No, did you? I really didn't. And I, I to be honest, I, uh, you know, I was a, a, a staunch Remainer, and um, I now, having seen how far um, the the thinking has moved towards this 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 reform, this agricultural reform. I think it's very, very exciting indeed. And if I had to vote again tomorrow, I, I would really have to think twice about going back into the old European farming system. There you are, Issy Tree, proud host to the first nesting storks seen in England since the Battle of Agincourt. If you've done that, then you have done something with your life. Next week, I'm talking to someone who isn't remotely famous, possibly because he spent most of his life underwater, but who has certainly had an interesting life. His name is Matt Parr, and you can look him up if you're that bothered, or you can just tune in and hear all about it. Until then, stay safe. Don't do anything stupid. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.